0: One of the assumptions behind the theme of this conference is that Christianity in America is becoming less nominal, more defined, more outside the mainstream of American culture. That's a quote from Ed Stetzer, president of LifeWay Research. Notice the last phrase, more outside the mainstream of American culture. That's not the same as saying that true Christianity in America is declining, either in numbers or in faithfulness. The statistics from the survey of the Pew research center, which Stetzer was dealing with when he said that, are tricky to interpret and we need help. I need help. On the one hand, we are startled to read that in the last five years, the number of Americans with no religious affiliation, checking that box, the nuns they're called n o n e s the number in the last 5 years has grown by 25% that's staggering today about 20% of adults in the US claim no religious affiliation that's up from 7% so up from 7 to 20 since 1972 among the younger it's more If you're over 65, 9% of you declare some religious affiliation. If you're under 30, 32% of you don't declare any religious affiliation. But Stetzer is is careful to notice something. Where does all the bleeding come from? He asks. For example, where do all these nuns, N-O-N-E-S, come from, the 25% increase over the last several years. And his answer is that they come from the nominals. In fact, the name of this article is From Nominal to None in Christianity Today earlier last year, May. For example, uh, only 45% of those raised in mainline Protestant tradition remain mainline in mainline churches. So they lose a dramatic number of people. These These are people who once identified themselves affiliated with mainline churches uh, and that gave an inflated number to Christian Protestantism in America and its seeming strength because the vast majority of those who left and stopped checking their affiliated box and checked no affiliation were not practicing Christians anyway. He says, if mainline Protestantism continues its trajectory, it is only a couple of generations from virtual extinction. Now, of course, the mainline churches are not the only churches with nominal Christians in them. Every church has nominal Christians. Every denomination has nominal Christians. And increasingly, those who were in that category are stopping checking in their survey boxes, Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, UCC, whatever. They're not checking it anymore. They're checking no affiliation. And here's Stetzer's conclusion from this. I'll I'll read now. Americans... Whose Christianity was nominal, that is in name only, are casting aside the name. They are now aligning publicly with what they really actually believed all along. The percentage of convictional Christians remains rather steady. But because the nominal Christians now are unaffiliated, the overall percentage of self-identified Christians is in decline. This overall decline is what Pew, the, the survey, shows and I expect it to accelerate. Still quoting Stetzer now. What we see from Pew is not the death knell of Christianity but another indication that Christianity in America is being refined. From 2007, still quoting, from 2007 to 2014, the number of evangelicals in America rose from 59.8 million to 62.2 million. Christianity isn't dying and no research says it is. Statistics about Christians in America are simply starting to show a clearer picture of what American Christianity is becoming. And then the quote that I gave you, less nominal, more defined, more outside the mainstream of American culture. Now here's the implication for the theme of this conference. The fact that evangelicals their numbers, convictional Christianity, as he calls it, have remained steady with numerical strength does not mean that we have maintained the same position inside the mainstream of American culture. So you can maintain and grow in your numbers as a convictional body of 60 million people and lose a place you once had because uh, the very forces that are making it desirable for the nominal Christians to become non-Christians publicly are the same forces that make our culture increasingly inhospitable to convictional Christianities. Here's the way Stetzer puts it. The cultural cost of calling yourself a Christian is starting to outweigh the cultural benefit. So those who do not identify as a Christian, according to their convictions, are starting to identify as nuns, no affiliation, because it's more culturally savvy. I'm still quoting Stetzer. Christianity is losing and will continue to lose its home field advantage. No one can or should deny this. However the numerical decline of self-identified American Christianity is more of a purifying bloodletting than it is an arrow to the heart of the church, close quote. Now, the assumption, therefore, behind this conference is not that the church today in America, the true, convictional, Bible-believing church in America, it. The conviction behind this this conference is not that that church is weaker today or less faithful than it was 60 years ago. This is my personal opinion right now. I, I grew up in that church 60 years ago, 50s and 60s. The nominalism, the weakness, the moral blind spots, the cultural conformities. The outright collusion with evil in the Jim Crow, half of the 20th century, north and south, was enormous. These were not glory days. The cultural reality was not that there was a strong church in those days, and today there is a embattled, weak minority that's not my read of the situation at all. As I look around on the evangelical church today, I would take it any day over the church of my youth. So that's not the assumption of this conference, that we've gone backward in faithfulness since the 50s and 60s. Far from it in my judgment in the evangelical church. The catch is that once upon a time there was huge social capital, cultural capital in South Carolina and Minnesota to be had by being a Baptist or a Lutheran in respective order. No capital to be a Baptist here 30 years ago. but big time in South Carolina and Lutheran there. Were there any? I'm sure there were. (laughs) That cultural, social capital is over. I just did a little research today. Virtually every member of the Ku Klux Klan was in the church. All of them. It was a requirement. White Anglo-Saxon Christian You can't be in this group if you're not that. I'm not eager to go back there. So, the assumption here is that the overlap, the cultural overlap between American 50s, 60s, 70s culture, broke down pretty much in the 60s, the overlap between that and the church is gone or going. There's little cultural advantage today, at least in our cities, to calling yourself a Christian in America, or to use Stetzer's phrase, the home field advantage that we've enjoyed for 300 years is over. The worldview and the moral convictions of mainstream American culture um, are increasingly, let's say, at odds with the worldview and the moral convictions taught in the Bible and therefore believed by Bible-believing churches. So um, there's a continuum. Picture it. Over here is Christians with no cultural advantages of being a Christian anymore. Just, Just state it that way. Over here is outright hostility and hurtful persecution. And and what I'm saying now by way of presumption for this conference is we're on that continuum now. We're not over there where it was nice and comfortable and useful, useful to be in the church. We're we're on a continuum between not useful and very painful. Where, Where you are in your city, church, village, on that depends on your locale, your city, and whom you ask. It's very diverse across America right now, but my point is we're on the continuum and at this present moment moving that way from no advantage to great disadvantage or hostility. That is the assumption behind this conference and I intend for there to be zero prophetic element In predicting which way on that continuum we will go in the future, I think we should pray for a stunning awakening in American culture. We should plead with God not to be done with us. But He is God, and if He brings stunning awakening and revival in the churches and in culture, we will praise Him and join Him. If He gives us up, to our sins, as he is presently doing, we will praise him even so, because he's God and he can do what he please, and we as a country have no covenant relation with him and therefore we don't have any right to presume America should get preserved as a country, a constitutional reality. No guarantees in the Bible of that. Now, one of the aims of of this conference, in view of that assumption, not the wrong one, but that one, is that this new position, in, in response to this new position of the church in our day, we Christians should not think it strange to be on this continuum that's one of the purposes. One of my goals in my two messages, and I think it overlaps with the others, is that our calling is to make plain and to encourage all of you to accept the calling of the Christian Uh, wherever we are on that continuum, we are called to rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory and to be overflowing in good deeds to those who don't like us. That's the the calling and that's the aim. My my hope in the conference is that there be a sober awakening to the present reality, a settled conviction, this is not strange, and an incredibly spirit-anointed joy in it and overflowing of good deeds that are manifest to the culture. And you can imagine where I'm going to go for my text. My aim is to try to give a biblical foundation for that aim and to strengthen you in your settled conviction, uh, whether it be just absent advantage or present derision, insult, ostracism, Hostility, wherever you are, on that continuum, that you will be made firm and joyful and proactively loving. If you have a Bible, and as David Platt says, I hope you do, let's go to First Peter 4:12 to 19. I'm going to be on this text tonight and tomorrow night, with another one sturdy and along the way. 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19, been living, been living in 1 Peter since last September, taught it at the seminary. Everything I write or think these days is just tinged with it, I can't get away from it because it seems to me the most relevant book right now that we have. Three times Peter refers to the Christians in this book as exiles or sojourners or refugees. Just like Paul did in Philippians 3, 21, our citizenship is in heaven, which should alert us that normal Christian experience is lived away from home. Not at home. Normal Christian experience is lived away from home, to be home with the Lord. And the lesson, I think, for these days is that we have been too at home in America. Way too at home. Way too at home here. And we're still dealing with the fact that the responses to the cultural developments show how alien what I'm going to say is in the American church. And how we have cultivated the sense of this is our home. It's not. Let's read the text starting at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised. Chapter 4 verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal, fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you as something strange as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God. Let him make God look good at that moment. In that name, the name Christian. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That's us. Judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will And trust their soul to a faithful Creator while doing good." What a text. That's worth two sermons. (laughs) Ten. So I'm going to walk through it twice tonight. Um, The first time through, I'm going to be asking the question, what's coming? What shouldn't you be surprised by? What is coming? And of course, it's Peter's day he's talking about. You're going to have to decide, is that generic and typical of Christian experience or was it unique to that moment? I don't think it was unique to that moment. I don't think he wants us to think it was unique to that moment or that period in history. And the second time through, we're going to ask what is the response Peter is expecting us to have to these things that are coming? There are six of each. Six things or six ways he describes what's coming and six specific kinds of response he wants us to have towards what's coming. So well, That's the uh, outline of where we're going. So let's pass through the first time asking, what is coming, Peter? Number one, Fiery trials are coming. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, what is that fiery trial? Well, you could say, writing from Rome probably, in 60s, perhaps he sees just over the horizon, Nero and the kind of horrors that were going to come with the fire in Rome and the scapegoating that Nero did with the Christians that was an unthinkable persecution in Rome where the city was lit with burning Christians. Maybe that's the fiery trial. Maybe. Maybe. I'm inclined to think we would be on safer exegetical footing if we let the language of fiery trial, fire, trial, fire, trial, guide us to the other place in the letter where those two words are used, namely chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It goes like this. If In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, plural, same word, trial, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. So now we have fiery trials. Instead of referring to one main thing on the horizon, referring to various trials. And if you, if you walk through 1 Peter saying, well, like what, like what, Peter, you would see 2.20, chapter 2, verse 20, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it? So beatings are one form that the fiery trial took in chapter 1. Or chapter 1, verse 21, Jesus' sufferings are given as the example You are called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So we look at Christ's life and death and we say, okay, that's it. That's my life. Not just one thing, all the things Jesus endured. Or chapter 3, verse 9, being reviled. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. So one of the fiery trials is reviling. People just reviling you. Or chapter 3, verse 16, being slandered at work. They're telling lies about me. They're not That was true. I didn't do that. I didn't say that. You're twisting my words. You're giving them another meaning. Chapter 3, verse 16, have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Or chapter 4, verse 4, they malign you because you're not partying with them anymore. It says so. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. That's a pretty wide spectrum of fiery trials and I I don't see any reason to take 412 when the fiery trial comes upon you don't think it's strange to mean one little thing or a big thing. It's all of that and more. So don't think it's strange when any of those things happen to you. Beaten, reviled, slandered, maligned. So from physical to verbal, from minor, maligning, square, jerk, crazy, whatever with you now, goody two-shoes or too good for everybody, holy roller, think you're better than we are, etc. Whether it's just that or whether the slave is being beaten. Why? Because he told the truth when his master told him to tell a lie or whatever. He got beaten for it. Don't think any of that is strange not strange, it's necessary. Necessary is the opposite of strange in this book because of chapter 1 verse 6 and 7. A little while, if necessary. For a little while, if necessary. For a little while, if necessary, you are being grieved by various trials. So, not strange, in God's plan, necessary. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, we're all familiar with. Luke is describing Paul's discipleship 101 on his second pass through the churches and what he said to those baby Christians. He said, through many tribulations you must. You know what that Greek word is? It's the same as necessary in First Peter 1, 6. Deon and Dei. This is a divine plan, a divine necessity. Through many tribulations, you must. No options. There's no other path home. That's what it says in Acts 14.22 and in 1 Peter 1.6, same divine necessity. If necessary, you will experience various trials. So not strange, necessary, because they are the refining fire that prepares you for glory. So the first answer to the question as we're passing through is, what is coming. Fiery trials are coming. And they're not unexpected, they're necessary. Second, all the rest, these next five, very quickly, are kinds of fiery trials, I'm arguing. So chapter 4, verse 13, Christ's sufferings is the second way he describes the fiery trial. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Calling them Christ's sufferings, I think, means they're the sort of things he suffered, and you're suffering them for his sake. So Christ's in those two senses. He, he suffered that, and now you are for his sake. And in those two senses, they are Christ's. Third, verse 14, the fiery trials are insult. If you are insulted, Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Number four, verse 16, it's called suffering as a Christian. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Number five, verse 17, it's called judgment. God's judgment. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. That's what the fire is. You got a theology for that? Handle that? It begins with us. The fire begins with us. Verse what? 17, and then suffering according to God's will. That's the sixth one in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. So, after our first pass through these verses from 12 to 19, we can see that the fiery ordeal is the sharing of Christ's sufferings. Verse 13. Verse 13 being insulted for his name, verse 14, suffering as a Christian, verse 16, refining judgment like gold in fire, verse 17, and suffering not against but in accord with God's will, verse 19, and therefore it is not strange. It's not surprising. What is surprising is a 300 year reprieve. That's surprising, off the charts, surprising. And it's over. Now, second pass through, what, what should we do How should we respond? What should we think, feel, do if those six ways of describing the fiery ordeal or trial are coming, which they are, they're already here in measure. How should we respond to what's coming? There's six responses here. And this time through, I'm not going to go in the order of the text. That's what I did that time, I just went 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and I'm not going to do it that way this time, and I'll I'll tell you why. Uh, I just taught this book, and and one of the things I'm trying to drill home to the guys that are in this room uh, is think into a text, beneath a text. And right into reality, think into heart, think into mind, think into culture, think into and down beneath. Don't settle on grammatical realities. Don't think you've exegeted a text when you can show that there's a because clause. Why is it a because clause? Why is it a therefore? Why is it in order that, and to make that work, you've got to know why hearts work the way they do. Right? You, if, if there's a cause in me that's bringing about something else, I've got to figure that I like to get in front of the mirror of God's word and know me. Superficial, grammatical, historical exegesis that doesn't lay hold on the neck of reality and squeeze it until it comes is not going to build up the church, not going to get the church ready to die. So, I've got this process of exegesis called leveling, <laughs> beyond arcing, beyond sentence diagramming, and the goal of leveling is to try to figure out in reality what's at the bottom, and next, and next, and next, and next, and to the top. And how do they feed each other? How do they make each other happen? How do all the pieces in this text not just fit together grammatically, but fit together in reality? And of course, texts must govern that, but they don't exhaust that. Okay, so I'm going to go from bottom to top in the six responses that we are to have. By bottom, I mean, what's the most foundational reality of my response? And what's the top endpoint and goal of my response? And what are the steps in between? And, and what complicates things sometimes is that some are simultaneous and causality is not sequential. Getting ahead of myself. Number one. So There's six of these. Number one, we should not subjectively be surprised. Objectively, we've been taught in the first pass through, it isn't surprising. It isn't strange. Now, we're being told, don't think it is. Don't feel it is. That's different. So verse 12 again, beloved, do not be surprised subjectively on the basis of the objective truth we've just seen. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We've seen the fact, and now we are being told, live the fact. If you're taught that suffering is to be expected, expect it. If you're taught that it's not to be surprising, when the pain arrives, don't say, Where did you, what? What?" I'm just so tired of seeing book titles about why God this and why God that. They'll, they'll always keep coming and they got to keep coming. The Bible has answers. We ought to ask the question, but I just want a church full of people who don't, who don't need it anymore. They don't need it anymore. Here it comes. This is what he said. We've been taught to be ready. We're ready. I know some glorious women and men who get it. And right at this very moment, as I speak, are singing on the brink of eternity in great pain. So, the first call is, don't lose your equilibrium, church. Don't stumble. Don't panic. You know, this book ends in chapter 5. I saw Andy down here. This is, this is the main point of the book. Stand firm in grace. Stand firm in grace. This Peter wants a people who are not. Oh, what is this? What's happened to my country? Like, where are you standing on? The Constitution? Good grief! Stand firm in grace. That's the opposite of losing your equilibrium, equilibrium, losing your balance. We want firmness. It's going to be hard. Life is hard. God is good. Glory's coming. That's our mantra. Life is hard. God is good. Glory is just over the horizon. Make my day. It's coming. So we start with the revealed truth. It's not surprising, and we move to the subjective command, don't be surprised by it if it's not surprising. Don't feel it strange if it's not strange. Don't think it's strange if it's not strange. Get your, your mental act into the Word. Get it together. Get it firm. Get it strong. Don't have to read ten books about your suffering when it comes. Read First Peter over and over again. Second, and trust your soul to a faithful creator. Okay, so now in my mind the way this is working is the first step was a theological deliverance. Like suffering is coming, expect it, it's not strange. Those are doctrinal facts being taught by an apostle and you should get on board with them. That's that's at the bottom. Doctrine down here, truth is at the bottom, standing on that Now, as it comes, what's next? Then I'm arguing, verse 19 is next. Therefore, let those of you who suffer according to God's will and trust, according to God's will, I've just told you what God's will is. It's coming, it's necessary. And trust your souls to a faithful Creator. As Jesus hung on the cross, he said, Father, into your hands I commit, it's the same word, It's identical same word, I entrust my spirit. He breathed his last, and that's what we're supposed to do. And then you watch it in action in 1 Peter 1, uh, chapter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting to him who judges justly, entrusted himself, entrusted his cause. So Jesus showed us how to do, number two, verse 19, and trust your soul to a faithful creator. That's the way he did it. Probably, Peter uses the word creator. It's kind of surprising, isn't it? And trust your soul to a faithful friend, savior, Lord, redeemer, no, creator. I'm, I'm, here's my guess as to why he chose that word. Um, when you are suffering, as some of them were suffering, In that moment, it feels like God has lost control. Just, he's lost it. I would not be this sick, or I would not be this tortured, or whatever. Surely there must rise up with Satan's fanning that little flame. What? And at that moment, it looks also as if, you look around, Christianity's not going to survive this. And it didn't in Turkey. It didn't in the whole Middle Eastern. I mean, Philip Jenkins has a book, The Lost Christianity. Church after church after church went out of existence. The the candlestick was removed. It's gone. And when you're suffering just on the brink of the extinction of your denomination, your church, you need a reminder. I want you to know that I made the world. I uphold the world. I care for you and I am very, very strong. I have not dropped the ball. I am the creator of the universe at this moment. I think that might be why he used that word. Number three, the third way we're supposed to respond to what's coming. Namely, not to be ashamed. Verse 16 If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. The human ego hates to feel shame. Little embarrassments are awful. I think I shouldn't psychologize here, but I suspect that some of John Piper's real weirdnesses that you don't know much about are owing to two or three horribly embarrassing moments as a child. And big shame can destroy a career and has caused not a few thousand suicides, right? You're out of this company, fella, or you're out of this church, man, you are out. And shame is a horrible thing. It is a horrible thing. And Christianity was founded on a shamed Christ. There's no other religion like this. You want a glorious faith? Choose one that is founded on a shamed Christ. Despised Hated, slandered, spit on, mocked, stripped, naked, nailed like a piece of meat to a pole, taunted the forerunner of his people. chapter 2, verse 21, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So objectively speaking, he was shamed and you will be shamed. You will be. Woe to you if all men speak well of you. That's a quote from Jesus. Woe to you if all men speak well of you, Luke 6.26. But subjectively, what did Jesus do when he was objectively so shamed? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What does that mean? despising the shame. He said, shame, I despise you. I despise you so much I will not give you the slightest place in my heart. I despise you shame so much I will not give you the least satisfaction of stopping me from suffering for my people. I will give you the least satisfaction from causing me to stop in my movement into this pain. No way, shame. You won't have that power in me. I despise you. And that's what Peter's calling us to feel and do unashamed. Of Christ, unashamed of ridicule, unashamed of sarcasm, unashamed of mockery and snubbing and abandonment and and suffering, objectively shamed, subjectively unashamed, rejoicing with Peter and the apostles that they were counted worthy to be shamed. That's weird. That's the miracle I'm after in here and out there. Number four, the response to the fiery ordeal that's coming should be, and here's one of those situations where I wondered, okay, which is more foundational, this one, joy or unashamed? Because that's what I mean when I said, I think they're simultaneous. Two sides of the same coin maybe, I'm not sure. Psychologically I'm still after this, I want to I get this, I want to I figure out how joy and shame, unashamed works. So I put, I put joy after unashamed, built on unashamed, occurring simultaneous with unashamed. Verse 13 is where we are but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Jesus said it. Luke said it. Paul said it. James said it. It is so pervasive in the early church and her documents. Jesus, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! And be glad in that day. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. And great is your reward in heaven. Persecution. Slapping one cheek or the other. Joy. Or Luke. Acts 4, 541 Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Or Paul, Romans 5, 3, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Or James, chapter 1, verse 2. Two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. At this moment, I feel the biggest burden for this conference. For my life, my marriage, my kids, my church, I feel the biggest burden for Christians. that we would be inexplicably born again to such a hope that this would come true for us, that we would rejoice at our sufferings. If there is someone in your church clamoring for you to show them from the Bible that they have a right to carry a gun and defend themselves and their family from suffering, by all means, spend 10 cents dealing with that. And then, spend a million dollars dealing with this. You get that? Why would you say that, Piper? Because... You don't need the Bible and you don't need the Holy Spirit to encourage human beings to defend themselves. None. None. They are so ready, you just tell me it's okay, because I want to do it. And, and, and so does the world without the slightest need for regeneration or the Holy Spirit or the Bible. So yeah, by all means, give it 10 cents. And then work on miracles, right? Who of you rejoices when you're slapped? Who of you rejoices when you're insulted? Who are you rejoices when the marriage is difficulty and the kids are breaking your heart and your church is split apart? Who of you has that miracle working in your life? Spend a million dollars on that. That's my burden. And, and if somebody says to me, and they're going to write in, I'm going to get emails about this, they're going to say, oh, there you go again, Piper. Confusing... Uh, uh, A burglar breaking into your house with Christian persecution. I said, I'm not confusing that. I said, give it 10 cents. Just tell them what you need to tell them. It's worth 10 cents. It is. It's in the Bible. Got that? World. Now, when when you spent your 10 cents... Tell them the most obvious thing in the world that their carnality wants anyway. Make some miracles happen. Get on your face before God and ask to become a new kind of person that the world cannot explain. You know what? The world does not ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you if you tell them it's in your holster. It does they don't. Nobody's gonna get converted by Christians being savvy when the Muslims show up. No, they're not. And talking like that does us no good. That's number four. And I I, I labor it for very simple personal reason. I'm not like that yet. And I want to be because I'm going to meet Jesus soon. I mean, you get that? Are you like that? Do you rejoice in suffering? Or do you need to get the, the last word in an argument? Okay, number five. We're almost done. One more page. This is true joy should come to us in our suffering. This is true Um, when love overflows from that joy in good deeds, and that's expected number five. Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Suffering and trust your soul, be unashamed, rejoice, and now do good. That's not, that's not private morality like, ooh, don't watch bad videos, or don't kill anybody, or don't steal, or don't tell lies. That, those go public sometimes. And that's good. Don't, don't forsake those. This, this is visible. This is overflowing with helpfulness to people that they can't deny. So suffering, trust, joy, love. When it says in 1 Peter 3.15, your adversaries will ask a reason for the hope that is in you. When was the last time that happened to you? One of the reasons it doesn't happen is because we're not rejoicing at suffering and we're not overflowing in good deeds in the midst of our suffering. Because these good deeds are gonna be done for the people that are making us suffer. We're not gonna say, whoa, 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 you're the bad guys, you don't get any help. You're the good guys, you do. That's the opposite of the point of the Good Samaritan. So, we are not going to be pitying ourselves and miserable and moping. We're going to be rejoicing and we're going to be returning good for evil by being overflowing in good deeds. More on that tomorrow. Lastly, number six, namely glorifying God. So you can see, I've I've built from the bottom now. I'm at the top. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, this is verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. When you suffer as a Christian and you're not surprised by it, because you've been well taught, and you entrust your soul to a faithful Creator, and you despise the shame the objective shame, you don't let it have subjective foothold in your heart, and you rejoice in your sufferings and you overflow in good deeds, guess who looks good at that moment? God looks good. And they might ask, what's the reason for your hope? because I should don't act like that when I get struck. I, I sure don't act like that when I get fired. I, I don't act like that when I get insulted or slandered and I can't figure you out because you don't seem to be hoping in the same things I'm hoping in. So there was enough public there for them to see the things that I treasure You don't seem to be treasuring like I treasure. So what are you treasuring more than what I treasure that makes me so angry when it's taken away? And the answer is God. And that's what you call glorifying God. You don't glorify God by just singing about the glory of God or saying that God is glorious. You glorify God by being so satisfied in God and all his ways, all his works, all his word, all his promises, all that he is for us in Jesus. You're, You're so satisfied in God that when these other things are stripped away through affliction and suffering, he hasn't been. And you make him look good When that goes, and that goes, and that goes, and you're still rejoicing, they just might ask, what are you hoping in? So, in conclusion, whatever form the fiery trial takes, from the rolling of eyes to the rolling of heads, God calls His blood-bought, eternally secure people, not to be surprised, but to entrust their souls to a faithful creator, to despise the shame, to rejoice in tribulation, to overflow with good deeds, and thus to show that our treasure is not on earth, but is in heaven. It is the all-satisfying glory of God. People might see and be silenced, repent, and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray. So Father, I I just pray for the miracle in John Piper, in my family, at Bethlehem, in all the people and all the churches represented here. We need the Holy Spirit to come in power. If you don't cause us to see you and feel you as supremely satisfying in this world of counterfeit pleasures, we will get angry and angry and angry every time we are crossed. And so, God, I plead for the miracle of this text to come true. For the good of people and for the glory of your name. Through Christ. Amen.